Little Nasties, through the with Dog by DVD. A.K.A. Twitch of the Death Nerve, A.K.A. A Bay of Blood, A.K.A. A Hatchet for the Honeymoon, A.K.A. Chain Reaction, and Blood Feast. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host. It's old dirty Hank, bringing it back. That's an old one. We don't know which Hank I am, or if I even am Hank, or what happened to him. Do you know which Hank you are? Well, Is this like the stepfather, who am I here? I'm not trying to spill the beans, but I might not even be Hank. We, We might have run out of funding money to keep hiring new Hanks, so I could just be an imposter for all we know. Who's the man behind the mask? No one knows. Thought you were going to sing Man Behind the Mask. I will not sing that song, thank you. He's back! He's the man behind! I, I cut that. I guess podcast if we uh, maybe or bi-monthly I'm not sure where we are on this one just yet I think we only missed one month this is episode three yeah it's episode three of our analysis of the video nasties epidemic in the 1980s where we talk about each individual nasty and why it was on the list and if you don't know what video nasties are go back to episode one I'm not explaining this whole fucking thing again Video nasty is a colloquial term in the United Kingdom to refer to a number of films distributed on video cassette that were criticized for their violent content by the press, social commentators, and various religious organizations. The term was popularized by the National Viewers and Listeners Association NVALA, in the UK in the early 1980s. These video releases were not brought before the British Board of Film Classification BBFC, which could have censored or banned many of the films, due to a loophole in film classification laws. As a result, this produced a glut of potentially censorable video releases, which led to public debate concerning the availability of these films to children due to the unregulated nature of the market. Following a moral campaign led by Mary Whitehouse and Vinvala, local jurisdictions began to prosecute certain video releases for obscenity. To assist local authorities in identifying obscene films, the Director of Public Prosecutions released a list of 72 films the office believed to violate the Obscene Publications Act 1959. This list included films that had been acquitted of obscenity in certain jurisdictions or that had already obtained BBFC certification. The subsequent revisions to the list and confusion regarding what constituted obscene material led to Parliament passing the Video Recordings Act 1984. But we're going alphabetically through the uh, the list, the uh, the BBFC list, uh, the uh, Section One list, and um, the first film we're going to talk about tonight 
should have been on the list earlier, depending on title. That's why this one is a little bit confusing because a lot of lists put it in different spots. But officially, the movie that we're talking about is called Bloodbath. That's what it was in the UK when it was banned upon release. But what Bloodbath truthfully is, is Mario Bava's Bay of Blood or Twitch of the Death Nerve, which is by far the greatest film title of all time. It also, I believe, was the first Last House on the Left 2. I think it got Last House 2 titling. It had yeah. a lot of titles, man. This movie it's just circulated titles. all over. What's great is playing Find the Title with this, because some of them are awesome. and I, I can't recall the French and Russian ones, but, but they're, they all translate to something pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, God, this is probably one of the most retitled films of all time. Uh, next to uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, that one's got a ton of different titles, too. Um, yeah, Living Dead like, at the Manchester Morgue has a lot of different titles. Yeah, um, and like the probably my uh, least favorite title is Don't Open the Window. That's a great explanation of uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. What the fuck kind of vague-ass title is that? Don't Open the Window. Not a winner. So, yeah, like you said, going into the video nasties, the, that first episode was a little bit rough. It's before our 125 crew staff of sound editors learned how to do what they were doing. I don't know. That joke's going nowhere. There's a lot of in and out weird jokes from the, the live Death by DVD that translated over to this show that uh, aren't funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're not trying to do jokes anymore. I'll uh, I'll spontaneous laugh at Hank because that's my shit. That's what I do. I laugh at Hank. Occasionally, um, I'm somewhat moderately humorous. I forgot what I was talking. Oh yeah, we're we're on Video Nasties Part Three. Sorry, I was trying to think of more Bay of Blood titles. Uh, God, unless you want to pull up the IMDb and just list the numerous amount of titles, but that's fairly irrelevant to what we're talking about today because we're just talking about a great film, a great giallo film, and a great film that's pretty much started the slasher craze. If um, anything, you can call it a proto-slasher. You can give it, it that it's grandfather the bridge, title. Really. It's the bridge between Jalo and slasher before you start picking up with things like uh, Black Christmas or uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. A year, maybe two years before this, Dario Argento made his very first film. So his introduction and um, uh, Antonio Margaret, Margret's movies were pretty much the capital of what was going on in Italy for horror. So Bava stepped into this with a, a lot of competition and ended up making something that was pretty uh, remarkable in its own sense. I mean, it doesn't have the same stylistic looks like uh, Suspiria or other things that came out toward the late end of the 70s from Italy, but it definitely has a purpose, and it's pretty beautiful. I think it shows a lot of the masterwork of... Uh, Which is kind of crazy you bring that up, horror. because Bava was... Um terrific in the 60s with um danger uh, diabolique with um somewhat the whip in the body blood and black lace of just having a very elaborate shooting style um highly technicolor um, just beautiful um colors everywhere and this one is very muted so and dario gentle le really learned a lot of his like filming tricks from baba i mean he he was he was a fan of baba and he knew baba personally at the time uh, he was friends with his son, Lamberto. Well, some of this actually came into play because of uh, Dario Argento maybe having a, a bit of a, a gloating problem that he wanted to have full uh, credit for his stories and was working with Dardando. I always say his last name wrong. I swear I thought it was Dardando Shashetti, but I think it's Dardando Sacchetti. 
Dardando Sacchetti, uh, and they had been working as a writing team, and he wanted screenwriting credits, and Dardando decided, sure, I guess I'll take story by, realizing that there was a pay cut. He took a different route and ended up working with Bava, where they started working together on what ended up becoming a Bay of Blood. I believe um, Sacchetti's ending is what stayed intact into the movie. There's some dialogue differences. There's a handful of different writers that ended up working for this in the final product, in which a lot of those ideas were strewn about by Mario Bava himself. And what's really kind of interesting about that is I wouldn't even consider this is probably a very unpopular opinion, but I wouldn't consider the writer as much of a drastic part of what this movie is um, as what the filmmaker Bava did with the material and I, really transformed really uh, the normal material into making it somewhat special. Um, and this is kind of like Bava really wasn't into a lot of violence. I mean, he had violence in a lot of his films over the years, but he didn't have much graphic, graphic violence. And this was kind of his dip into that genre because that's where things were starting to lean at the time and um in european cinema at some point in his life in an interview that bava was somewhat like a very lovable grandfather but had the oddest obsession with trying to figure out different ways for people to die but outside of that he he was just not a really violent guy it wasn't his style and he definitely wasn't really into nudity or sex i mean there's a one of the very brief scenes of, of sex and nudity somewhat in his entire career is in Twitch of the Death Nerve, which uh, was lifted and used for Friday the 13th Part 2, though it was cut to fucking hell for TV edits. But still, I mean, that's something to say about Baba's career in, in, in total, how much its influence has been lifted and bitten into American slasher films. And it's something that I think a lot of horror audiences might not even notice that you know, you, you're more familiar with Italian horror than you might think if you really know the Friday the 13th, especially the first three series uh, fairly well. I mean, any 80s slasher movie has a lot of Baba influence, I dare say. Well, a lot of it, of the uh, the uh, unknown killer. I mean, this is all Giallo stuff, too, that was used over and over again of the uh, killer POV with the hands and the, uh, the leather gloves, very Giallo-based. And I, I would dare to say that as far as Bava's career is concerned, this it would be almost like Bava slumming it a bit. Uh, kind of like how Alfred Hitchcock slummed it with a frenzy. Um, just kind He's of like for exploitation, but he wasn't entirely an explicit exploitation carny kind of guy. No, I mean, he just had, he was, I think, more than anything, it just seemed like Bava was interested in cinematography and just making beautiful landscapes and like beautiful sets and making everything almost like a comic book or something. It's, it's just all highly graphical. And this is one of his like least films in that way, but it's still beautiful to look at for what he managed to accomplish. And as far as I'm concerned, my favorite scene, albeit my, like my favorite murder even in the film is at the very beginning. Um, it's just kind of a really crazy, interesting way of murdering someone someone being hung i think it's honestly despite a lot of graphic violence shown throughout the movie the most uncomfortable and devastating death because you really kind of feel what's going on with this sequence well it's it's someone who is confined to a wheelchair whose legs don't work and is being hung like three feet off the ground can't 
push off the ground, can't your legs don't work, so you're just going to sit there and hang two feet off the ground. And it's just kind of a beautiful shot, and that ends up on a lot of the uh, the poster artwork. And that's the actual uh, box art. I love how the wheel for the wheelchair continues to spin as she slowly begins to degrade, and then as she finally succumbs to death, the wheelchair's wheels stop spinning. You know, it's like a roulette kind of wheel thing. That was really, And really that's fun. just straight-up Italian filmmaking right there. Like I've said a million times on this show, Italians at least back in the day, made films with their heart. Sense was not, like, really, a, like, a, even a concern, ma- making sense. It was just, it, does this all feel correct? And that's what this film has more than anything. Just everything feels like it ebbs and flows in, like, a perfect harmony. Even down to the, um, one of my favorite trailers of all time is the uh, trailer under another title known as Carnage. Um, you've seen that trailer, I'm sure, a million times. Yeah, I think this is the most well-known trailer, isn't it? It's fucking amazing because you can barely tell what the fuck is going on. It's all these um, shots from the film done in primary colors with just this really awesome 60s kind of bongo jazz sex music playing. And it's just like, it's just super smooth trailer. It it doesn't engage me particularly. It's not like, oh, I really need to see this movie because it looks incredibly violent or whatever. It's just like, I can't tell what the fuck is going on, but I'm into it. I want to sit around, smoke some opium, and just let this play for a few hours. It's that kind of trailer. Something I, I really appreciate when it comes to Bava in general is he seems to have a little bit of disdain for people. A lot of his films kind of have a almost ecological message behind them of, you know, people inherently will commit violence. People inherently are kind of shitheads and don't really take care of the environment. And in Bay of Blood specifically, we'll keep referring to it as different titles until we move on to the next movie. But in Bay of Blood specifically, everyone that tries to kind of cause harm or change the bay ends up drastically meeting their demise. And again, you know, I'd referenced a lot of the, the death sequences being bitten and used for later American slasher films, but this was before a massive era of you know well acknowledged violence and gore. And um, it's uh, it's Carlo Rimbaldi that did the effects, wasn't it? Uh, I'm probably because he did a lot of the uh, Italian cinema at that time. Um, I, I I don't have the actual information in front of me. I think it's E.T. himself, Carlo Rimbaldi. They didn't even have a credit for it. I I, I think maybe in the Italian version, which I watched a couple days ago, it just says Rimbaldi somewhere in the credits. It doesn't even give his full name or what he he did and was involved on it. But that's kind of um, you know evident with a lot of early Italian and, and proto slasher films. A lot of these guys were all working on each other's movies and just didn't get credits. Like uh, we had mentioned with the the script writers, there's maybe three or four, maybe even five different people that chunked in edits and wrote different things for the script. And again, what makes Baba unique is instead of you know, throwing each one out and just sticking with one thing, he used a lot of different ideas and a lot of these different writers' ideas meshed and melded with what he visually wanted to do, even down to, like, the bay where they shot at, um, the the house, the, the manor where they shot at. It really wasn't densely like a forest. There weren't a lot of trees, so he had to go out and find trees, and most of those shots, if you notice, when they're walking through the woods are really, really tight and close to the camera because it's just people walking around with sticks and trees with her to give you the appearance that it's a really deep wooded area. And that's just kind of the genius of Mario Bava. And something that's really fun about him as a director is he always kind of gives you a nod or pokes that this is just all fun. Nobody's really getting hurt. This is just a movie. Everything's okay. And there's always these 
little sequences that you, if you pay attention, you can see that are like well cut in. Like after one murder, I believe it's the German girl. Um, it does the focus up on their dune buggy, the little yellow dune buggy that the three or the four teens came to the the manor at, and it's got a little smile almost. It's it's horn and it's funk grill is just a little smile. So it's almost like Bob is telling you, don't worry about it. It's very violent, it's very graphic, but it's all okay. And I have a, a really cool appreciation for that because it's breaking the fourth wall, kind of like the Deadpool comic books or whatever do, by just letting you know you're still safe, but it's going to get worse. And, and it's just something trademark kind of with Mario that is unique, I guess, to, to know. Well, one of the uh, kind of really interesting things about just the plot devices used in this film are the murders themselves because spoilers, full spoilers for Twitch of the Death Nerve. Um, it's not one person. This isn't some lone nut. This isn't Jason Voorhees. This is several people. Well, it's like an extreme version of Clue. Yeah, and when people who have just murdered someone, like, two scenes later, are going to be murdered themselves. And you don't really get it all worked out until you kind of get to the end and the big Scooby-Doo reveal of kind of really what's going on. That's kind of an interesting setup for what this film is. It is kind of like a game of, or kind of like the end of the movie clue or, um, to where everybody was killing someone else basically. And they all had their different motives. Like you can see a lot of things that were used for the very first Friday the 13th from Sean S. Cunningham. He obviously had to be a fan and it's kind of cool. I mean, you have the, the turtleneck guy. He's a little bit like Jason and lives out in the shack out in the woods and, it's just really fun to see how these things transcend and are, are how they're used by other people. I um, It's a forbidden name and topic on this show, but I was listening to, or I wasn't listening, I was watching a Sirius XM interview with Quentin Tarantino where he was talking about um, you know, some of his biggest influences, and one of them was Mario Bava and Black Sunday. And he said something that I thought was really, really interesting that I, I hadn't really paid attention to or noticed before, but I really do agree with him that Mario Bava was the first filmmaker that he started noticing scenes. That he didn't just, you know, watch the movie and go, oh, that's cool, I get it. He started noticing and paying attention to how things were done. And and once even, like, you say that and you think about that and you realize any Bava movie you've seen, you can realize and pick scenes directly out of it and almost completely understand them, and that's just his craftsmanship as an artist and as somebody who had a, a great understanding of cinematography and for example there's a really really great scene in carnage twitch of the death nerve where and it's like a french technique and i can't remember exactly what it's called but it'll like fade into a character and then like soft vignette and blur out and then fade into another character and fade into another character as it slowly tells you what everyone is doing at this time into the film and it just adds this like uh, almost supernatural level that you can see everything and understand what's going on. And just as an audience member, it's it's sort of remarkable that, you know, what Tarantino said really does have a lot of merit, that you truly can um, notice the craftsmanship and, and how scenes are built and what scenes are with somebody like Mario Bava. And that was, um, you know, I it just it's sometimes he... So that the thing about Tarantino is he he's loves not a all this dumb shit. man. He knows film. He just makes terrible films himself. This is his passion. That's... You know, he knows exploitation very, very well. I mean, even uh, Antonio Margretti. I always say his fucking name wrong. Antonio Margret, Antonio Margretti. Fuck me. I don't know. I'm I'm a stupid idiot. Whatever <laughs> this fellow's name is is even a somewhat character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He loves this. This is his thing. Which um, you know, I don't think all of his films are terrible. I like Jackie Brown. Uh, I just, 
we're not getting into Tarantino tonight. We're just, we're talking about Bava. God. Damn. Yeah, his his comment though I do feel is very very apt and is very enjoyable as a fan to have that kind of address because it made me realize well yeah you know he he really is a, was a, just a craftsman so it's sort of funny his name is always dragged with exploitation and horror and slasher films as to where that should almost be appreciated as a highlight because some of this I mean it's like I I kind of referenced Suspiria with its colors and how great it is obviously it's not in that court of art but in its own right i mean uh, if you have like an appreciation for romero and his editing style you have to kind of share that passion for mario baba that these guys are fast quick and beautiful well i mean it's really knowing what you want getting what you want and being able to edit it all together perfectly because that's where a lot of movies trip up now in editing and baba didn't have any waste all of his shots were important and just talking about seeing the mechanics of what's behind uh, actual filmmaking and how you build scenes and how you build character um, through visuals. Like once you are into film and once you start seeing the mechanics of how things work, it kind of makes things more beautiful. And it also kind of ruins things because it's hard for you to like, for me, it's really hard to get into a movie when i just see exactly what you're getting ready to do it's like okay well you're building for the jump scare you're doing this you're doing this part and then this is gonna yeah once you start seeing the actual internal skeleton of a movie it makes it less enjoyable sometimes but not with bava because when you see his skeleton you see kind of the brilliance of what he is trying to create the tapestry if you will um even he's really strong on image images in this film there's a lot of things like that presented throughout the movie like before one character's death they stand right in front of a, a broken kind of uh, mirror but the edges of the mirror are all bright red sort of like the flowing blood that's about to be presented in the next scene and it's it sets it up for you but they're they're quite remarkable because you have to pay attention to really you know colors and a lot of essences and feeling well it's a lot with Baba, he it's almost like as opposed to it being a moving image, he was almost more brilliant as just a still photographer and creating like drastic, beautiful imagery. And that's what this film has. Even down to like uh, when they find the body, again, another thing that's been emblazoned on many uh, of the film posters for this movie, of the head surrounded by octopus tentacles. And it's just kind of this very jarring uh, image of like nature and like human death combined. It, the same thing is used in uh, Sleepaway Camp with a drowned uh, camper and the snake coming out of their mouth. Something along those same lines. Baba did it better. Don't get me wrong. Most definitely got it better. But it's just there's something very strange and ethereal about the way he presents death in this film. It's almost like, again, I, the best thing I can describe it as is like almost like comic book stills, just very bold and bright, like a almost like a, a Lichtenstein print, if I pronounced his name completely wrong, probably. Lichtenstein? Lichtenstein. I don't know. He's a German artist. Look him up. Licky Thumb. Um, the guy that did that really cool pop art and hyper cool colors. You know who he is. Yes, something along those lines. And that's what Baba really excelled at, and he excelled at it in this film. Um, and then... The ending is also kind of brilliant how we just are left with the, the two children who end up being the ultimate winners of this whole fucking charade of a weekend where everybody gets killed. It's just kind of almost like a middle finger to the audience of just like, hey, this is what you just watched and now your children are going to come in and kill you. And then they get to go and enjoy the nature and the beauty of the bay 
The original ending was going to have the children yell out, this is what you get for being bad. But I like that they maintained innocence by, what is it? To just yell mommy and daddy. Or no, uh, the, the, I think the final line of dialogue is, they're so good at playing dead. And then they run off. So there's just this bizarre innocence, but they're, again, it's kind of like just a dirty joke because these kids are going to go play for a little while and come back and find their parents are actually dead. So, you know, joke's on you. Ha ha. So nothing really, you know, stops. You don't know from the beginning to the end who's killing who and what's going on. And that's something that you can really appreciate. And it's just so uh, horribly done wrong now. I mean, the idea is constantly used to just, I mean, every Scream movie has taken a card from Twitch of the Death Nerve, and it's just kind of pitiful. It's just annoying. I'm to getting see ready to use a reference that I'm not 100% comfortable with, and I'm going to get called out for. Uh-oh. But the ending of Twitch of the Death Nerve and the ending of Cabin Fever are actually very similar. I think that's kind of what Eli Roth was almost kind of taking and making his own in Cabin Fever with the whole stupid... Uh, general store owner and the uh, the gun behind the counter and then and then playing the David Hess music at the end and just kind of like it almost has the same feeling to me as what the end of Twitch of the Death Nerve is. Joe Dante said it's the best ending since Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's a true. And quote. Joe Dante is uh he's the um, the authority on these things and I'm not joking he yeah. actually is he he really is a, a vast man of great knowledge we could do a retrospect on Joe Dante one day um going back over a bay of blood this last week has just been super enjoyable for me because it's just pure quality and that's something i really want to stress to the audience that you know especially if you haven't seen this film even if it's not your style check it out there's two different versions there's the english and there's the italian version and it's not a horrible dub he shot both at the same time, scene for scene, would do an English take and then would do an Italian take. I personally feel the Italian version has a little bit more attitude, and it's just because most of the actors spoke native Italian, so of course it's going to have a little bit more flair. But it's kind of cool. You can see where, you know, in one sequence maybe he zoomed in a little too much, so when he shot it for the Italian version, which seemed to be the second shots, um, it would be a little bit cleaner. So it's a little bit tighter, a little bit cleaner, and has a little bit more attitude. It, and that's just something fun itself. I don't think the Italian version ended up being banned. I think it was the English cut, which was titled, what, Bloodbath? We already talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, it, and the reasons why it was banned, I we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it here. But basically, um, I don't know what title it went under originally because it never got released in the UK in a theatrical release. It was banned before it even came out on video, and then a uh, video version slipped by the censors because, again, it was the Wild West and Great Britain at that point, and video companies were just buying properties and sticking them out with almost no ratings for the most part. And that was pretty much what the Video Nasties scenario is all about. So this film, I'm assuming, was banned mostly because of um, explicit violence, but when you really go back to it, the, the violence is not particularly explicit. Probably the the most explicit thing is the uh, the teenager getting the uh, the machete to the face, like in Friday Thirteenth Part Two. I love um I, I can't remember what they named the German girl. She has a ridiculous name, but I love her partial decapitation. That always sticks with me. That's a really really great death sequence. And the spear scene, 
I, I love fucking that scene so much, which, again, that was what was used for Friday the, again in Friday the 13th Part 2. But there's just something so amazing and so beautiful about how this character that you've already... You don't know exactly who he's killed, but when you're in his little Jason shack, you get to see one of the murder weapons, so you get an understanding that he is one of the more vicious killers in the movie. But once he's finally impaled and is dying, there's like this cherubic kind of, like, Rembrandt painting, lighting, and this very soft, fuzzy music that gives you this, like, sad appreciation for him. You start feeling really bad for what... Because he kind of got fucked over. Everybody got fucked over. It's it's a very um, hurtful story. You know, no, no one's in this for the right reasons, and that's kind of, again, a trademark of Bava of just showing the inherent bad nature of humans. And it's not that every human being is bad, but for the most part, people only care about themselves. You don't see, you know, bays and animals fucking each other over for a percentage. The bay just existed in harmony. It was just a piece of nature. You know, like going back to Rollerball, you had the sequence of the the famous happy, yuppie people going out and destroying these trees for sport. And it's just, that's human nature. It's just destructive. And that's what it's kind of a reference toward in, in total. Baba, a lot of Baba's work. I wouldn't say everything, but a lot. Yeah, but probably it has also something to do with it being banned in England. It's just the imitatable violence, the fact that there really isn't a positive character for the most part in the film, and at the end, the children involved in some sort of violence. These are all different things that probably end up getting banned. Also, yeah, the, 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 kids, the, really. the, the poster and video box is fairly graphic, even though it's uh, drawings. It still has blood on the box, and it has blood in the title, so naturally that's what the... Uh, the uh, the Bobbies were looking for when they uh, the rated the uh, the VHS stores back in the day. So this one, um, even kinda... now, it's still that's the cover. I have the Kino Lorber Classics edition, and it's just the German girl getting whacked in the head with the hatchet. So that has maintained from the Video Nasties era to this day. It's just something that is explicit with the movies. It's violence, and that's what draws a lot of people in. But it's articulately done violence. So. Uh... Let's go into the incredibly mundane stuff of what video are you looking for if you're looking to purchase original copies of these? Now, you say um, uh, this is the mundane part of the show, but I think this is what a lot of the audience ends up enjoying is is hearing these facts that you're bringing up. Too much information? Yeah, the it's not, well, not even so much too much information, but I think most people that are listening to this specific show are excited about the video nasties and maybe learning something that they haven't heard before because this is a very watered down subject everybody's done the video nasties i think even rebecca mckendry just recently released a video nasties episode for her podcast you know it, it's a very well tackled subject so when you can learn something new or get a different perspective on things you know us in this genre kind of eat it up and i don't know it's been nice we've gotten some good feedback on this so thank all two of you that listened <laughs> so the, if you're looking for the original uh the box of the uh, the uh, pre-certificate band version. It is the Hokushin. That's a weird Japanese video company for a uh, UK release, but Hokushin um, video label. And right now it is going on eBay for 136 euros. So that's about what the going price is for it. And uh, like I do on every single one of these episodes, I will read the excerpt from the book, The Art of the Nasties by... Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris. And it usually just gives you kind of an 
a at least a few years ago update of what um where these films are now in the uk and what's still banned what's not banned that sort of thing what was cut out of the films but i believe this book, was it, um 1980 didn't it didn't it, it came out in 1980 in england it came out in well i mean it it came out or it tried to come out in 71 and then i think uh yeah let's see 19 it was the 1980s um Bobber's precursor to the stock and slash films of the 1980s was rejected outright when submitted to the BBFC for theatrical distribution in April of 1972. This uncut version sneaked out on video in February 1983 is when it premiered Ah. and has since been re-released by Redemption Films under the title Bay of Blood with BBFC approved cuts tolling 43 seconds. Medusa issued sample sleeves under this title, but their tape was never released. So, there's the mundane information. Yeet, as the kids say. So yeah, a Bay of Blood, Twitch of the Death Nerve, whatever you want to call well, it's it. It's a classic. Out of yeah, all certainly. the movies on like these lists, there's like a handful of absolute classics. Things that absolutely needed to be on there. Things that are important to horror history as a whole. This is one of them. It will, later in the series, we're going to get to stuff like Cannibal Holocaust, which is very important. But a lot of the things on these lists, like Axe... Um, are just good old Lisa Lisa. They're like we can debate if they're good films or if they're bad films, but at the end of the day, they're just kind of unimportant films to a historical standpoint. To very uh, strange historians like myself and Hank, like we're a little bit more interested. But if you're really like interested in horror stuff, yes, you need to see Bay of Blood, Bloodbath, Witch of the Death and Earth, Carnage, whatever title you watch it under. Um, this is one of the important ones. This isn't one you just kind of like really need to skip whatsoever. I said this when we did Axe, but if that movie hadn't been a video nasty, it wouldn't have been seen. It wouldn't. Have, I mean, drive-ins, yeah, you might have seen it then, but it wouldn't be appreciated whatsoever now. So a lot of these are known because they're video nasties, but A Bay of Blood needs to be seen just to be appreciated if you're into art in general. And where we're going to next, there's some similarities between these two directors, um, and it's not just the Criterion channel, it's Criterion in general. That's sort of a, a snooty art thing. You know, when you hear Criterion, you're um, are going to assume, you know, maybe some David Lynch movies, Akira Kurosawa, something uppity and fancy. You will always find in the ranks of Criterion Mar- Mario Bava. He he will be up there with the the Federico Fellinis and the Jean Luc Godards. You will always find Mario Bava. And the person we're going to talk about next, well, the film we're going to talk about next, the director of it is equally appreciated in these crowds. So that has to have some merit. I mean, even if you're looking at things on a skin deep value and judging it because it's Criterion and it's released on a snooty label, there is a, a deep level of appreciation because of the masterwork and knowledge of filmmaking. It doesn't matter that it's horror, giallo, or proto slasher, or whatever the fuck you want to call it. It's just a masterwork, and it's being able to enjoy somebody that's, you know, these type of filmmakers don't exist anymore, and it's not because of ingenuity or dreams, it's because of schools and training. This guy's entire life was was film, editing, style, photography, um, figuring out how to put these images into motion-moving art, and it's just incredible the uh, value and level of appreciation that somebody like Mario Bava had. And again, all of these guys, we've, we've discussed the Italians before, worked together in in different facilities and all kind of borrowed and and knew each other and their their methods and their work styles and mario baba's son lombardo went on to be you know one of the forerunners in in gore and 
super acknowledged, I think, Italian exploitation cinema, but I will always prefer Mario. I always think he is just a superior, beautiful filmmaker, and I do have a lot of love for his um, disdain for humans. I, I like when it's pointed out that people just kind of suck, and he always does it in a very clever, sort of hopeful way, and I have an appreciation for that, too. Next on the list... A movie that is on the list, I was, is, I'm assuming, on pedigree alone, on title alone. Some of the gore, yes, definitely, I'm sure cow that's there. Tongue, but cow tongue, cow tongue. Lamb's tongue. The lamb's tongue, lamb's tongue, lamb's tongue. Sorry. But really, like, what I don't understand is why this film is on the list, but a couple of his other films did not making the uh, Section 1 list. They made some other lists, but they never made this list. They were never, like, outright banned or prosecuted. And this one is probably one of the hackiest out of all of his films uh, from that era. It's and a it, long, hard one. We're talking about, hmm? It's a long, hard one. We're talking about... Blood Feast from Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, the original gore film, the first ever uh, film to really revel in depravity and violence towards other human beings. What's the greatest thing about it is if you spend any time getting to know, quote unquote, Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, Joe Bob Briggs said this. The man was a master of the King's English. He he just spoke absolutely beautifully and is one of the friendliest, nicest guys. You can watch a interview with him and feel like you've known him for 20 years. And he just, I don't know, he takes you over with his, his knowledge of just about everything. The guy was just one hell of a human being. And then you sit down and you watch his work and it's like, what the fuck? This is, this is pure insanity. This is just so many levels of bizarrity, weirdness, schlock, uh, just trailer park Well, the humor. important thing to say is money. That's oh, yeah. probably the most important word in horse record. That's what exploitation life. is, man. Money. And he was an exploiter um, because originally he was doing a lot of nudie cutie films like The Adventures of I mean, Lucky Even Pierre. before that, his his life was just bizarre. I mean, he started out as a, as a professor. He had a doctorate's degree. He could have called himself Dr. H.G. Lewis. He was into marketing. He was into advertising. That's what he was good at. And that's like what all of his films were. They were marketing gimmicks. And here's a film to go around it. He was a university teacher. He taught English and humanities and decided, you know what? I just kind of want to be rich, so I'm going to figure out how to do that. And and did. He just, you know, did it. And it, it worked. It just truly shows you if you put some backbone into stuff, you might be able to get rich. And later on in life, after he retired from horror movies, the man became like the king of fucking telemarketing and, and, and spam mail and figured out how to continue raising his, his millions, literal empire, by writing books and doing seminars and teaching people how to write spam mail. It's genius. The man in total was genius. I mean, this the whole point of this isn't a whole review of Herschel Gordon Lewis's life, but there is just some appreciation for how awesome he was. He, he really was a remarkable human being. They don't make him like H.G. Like Lewis anymore. Well, he was a huckster, and in the 60s... and His partner was he, a fucking carny, I mean... <laughs> yes, and he met a carny, and they decided to make movies Dave Friedman. So that's the best way, like, way to describe it. It's just like he met a guy who worked for the carnivals, and he was a huckster, and they originally were doing nudie-cutie films to, uh, to turn a buck, and that was working for a while. When that stopped working, we could stop selling that off on the secondary market. What else can we do that will bring in crowds? What kind of gimmick can we... Um, achieve here to really like bring in a drive-in circuit in a B picture, and the answer was gore. 
Yeah, he Herschel even said at one point that he used to make nudie cuties with the ugliest girls in the world. And I think he kind of realized, well, let's just get them naked and kill them and see what can happen with that. And it, it just worked marvelously, which it's kind of funny. One of his uh, early nudie cuties was the first Karen Black film. And yeah, she wasn't a looker, but oh, it's kind of mean. But if you like, if you go back and watch a lot of old um, Lewis interviews, he will he kind of has like a, a Tom Savini planned response, and he would always say that the fir- our first idea was to make the kind of films that Hollywood either couldn't make or wouldn't make, and that's what I wanted to do, and that's where he came up with let's do violence next, well, and too, they made Blood Feast end. together. You know, he got money from a guy that was was running a a pretty decent theater in Chicago, I believe, and that's really where it came from, is they knew they could get it circulated, they knew they could get it seen, and Blood Feast came out in 1963 and was still playing the drive-in circuit well into the late 80s. And and just it hadn't retired. I mean, it wasn't like it was brought back or it was a special Fathom release or something like that. It just continued to play. It, well after Herschel, it was retired at this point. And then truly, uh, the person that was really not... I mean, there's a couple guys that are really responsible for maintaining and keeping Herschel Gordon-Lewis's work alive. But I give a lot of credit to Joe Bob Briggs. And he had, you know, as the story goes, he tells us on the last drive-in marathon, the very first one, he, he went to Herschel's house to talk to him about this. He went down to Florida while he was well into retirement to bring up, you know, people want to see this. We're, we're going to do this. We're going to release this. And they did. Um, and, and it's just wonderful. That's, that's one thing even out of all of this, the show, go back and find the last drive-in marathon and um, – Joe Bob Briggs did Blood Feast, and you can even see his eyes light up when he talks about um, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He he truly is passionate about this subject, and it's much more informative than will probably be. And you get to watch the movie; it's great. Pay for Shutter, buy Shutter, give us a Shutter T-shirt. Shutter, come on. I mean, that's just a brief idea of what the history behind this film is. But at the end of the day, what the film is is what I said before: a marketing gimmick, because the movie itself is kind of trash. I love it I mean, there's for only the trash two bare that it boobs, is. right? I mean, there's not a lot of nudity in this at all. No, I think there's very brief nudity, but the post the nudity, they went with violence and they went with a lot of entrails, a lot of pig entrails, a lamb's tongue, and a lot of fake blood splashed everywhere. And the premise itself is fucking ridiculous. A caterer named Fuad who like is trying to bring back an ancient Egyptian goddess through the uh, the blood feast, the feast the feast of Ishtar. You know, well, she um, said Etar, and I was thinking Ishtar. Maybe there's something to that. This movie has some great stale dialogue. I I yelled a little while ago. It's gonna be a long, hard one. It's just none of these people were professional actors, and that's part of the charm of an H.G. Lewis movie is he just kind of used people. It's like a Frankie Avalon movie gone fucking berserk, and that's what they feel like to me. They feel like those old beach movies. That's a great reference. Um, And that's like the acting is the same. Um, The kind of positive uh, teenage feel and vibe is there through all of them. The end of the movie is the weirdest positive thing. It has this disturbing, awful graphic ending of Fuad being crushed in a garbage machine, in a garbage machine, in a garbage truck. And they're just like, well, he grabs the the radio, call it in. I guess he paid for it. (laughs) Tell everybody the killer's dead. And they're just like happy, you know, like, like a weird radio show from the 1930s. You're just waiting for them to tell you to remember, drink your Ovaltine. And I guess like in the movie, them, it, 
all of the Herschel movies are not great movies, but what's great about them is how innovative they are and innovative within themselves, not just to the, uh, the genre or the film industry as a whole. It just inside of what they were trying to do of creating these effects for no money of coming up with a very thinly veiled storyline just to show violence to the people. Cause that's what you're really paying for. You're not paying to watch these. You're paying to watch Connie Mason possibly strip. Well, what really worked too was the campaigns HG Lewis would go on for these movies is he, he kind of sold them and this was deeply before trailers were a, a really big selling point here. So he would go on, you know, advertising campaigns pretty much to sell these movies and, the whole point of doing that is to sell you this great idea, but none of it really ever appears on screen. So it's the whole bait and hook thing. It's a pyramid scheme, essentially, and it just it was a realization that you could get into this. And it all came from him. He eventually, at one point in his career, ended up in radio. And that's where he sort of got into, uh, segued into making film, and that progressed to where he, it wasn't ever... A passion of art, and it's something that he even has said himself. He never considered himself an artist. Many, and it's uh, he also, or I believe Friedman has said, art is in the eye of the beholder. So if people feel this is art, certainly yes, at it, st- some extent it's art. But he thought himself more of an entertainer than anything else, which I, I would consider artist cra- uh, artisan. You know, that's that's a craftsmanship of art in any form, whether you're a comedian or a fucking ice skater. It's art. And that's truly what he defined himself as. So it wasn't a matter of making schlock, schlees, porn. It wasn't personal. It wasn't political. It was entertaining. Financial. And the whole backing point of being an entertainer is, is financial for him. That was the, the goal. And he succeeded perfectly as an, as an artist. I mean, that's it, truly a, a craftsmanship artist work is how he went at being an entertainer. So I think there is – that's the reason why you'll see H.G. Lewis – and Mario Bava on things like Criterion because there is a, a masterwork to the like you just mentioned the how you could get all this gore how you could show this on screen but do it so cheaply even to like H G Lewis had his own blood made that was his recipe of blood because it had to look a certain way and it worked it it the point of exploitation isn't necessarily making money or exploiting you but it's entertaining and getting it on the bill and in the long run yes that's making money but. It's just such a weird Herschel Gordon Lewis himself explains it better than anyone. Well, and like what really sold this movie more than anything was that trailer though of Bill Kerwin getting like, you know, being front and center like like a Kubrick film saying if you have a heart condition or it can be easily influenced by this imagery. You need to leave the theater now. So just even in the trailer, it's you're getting re- ready to see something you've never seen before. And that's really what's going to pack them in, is basically telling them, hey, we're going to fuck you up. Don't you want to get fucked up? Pay us to fuck you up. And that still works to this day, as far as advertising goes. You had the vomit bags, a lot of ideas that were later used and, and bitten by guys like William Castle, and when exploitation started to boom into the 70s, all of these things and these tricks were borrowed from H.G. Lewis. I mean, this uh, him and Roger Corman are the kings, and it's their craftsmanship and how they stylized things with no budget that has even promoted to now independent filmmaking. These guys aren't even given the same credit that you get. Like, Stanley Kubrick was one of the first independent filmmakers. Ah, suck my dick. I don't want to hear about Martin Scorsese. Let's talk about H.G. Lewis. Let's talk about Roger fucking Corman. I mean, these guys were out there just running and gunning, and they get 
this massive enamoration and love because of the genre that they worked in, and that's even exploiting the the, the fans. I mean, these guys to their their last minutes. That's what they did. Roger Corman is still alive, thankfully, but H.G. Lewis sold a show until the the last minute. That's what he was good at, and God bless him for it. And like the mechanics of this movie have gone on to be in films to this day. I mean, they did a remake apparently fucking what? Three years ago. I think it was, I was bad. Yeah. You sent me that link and I had I no heard of it before. Nope. Like, I don't even know who, like it's got a fucking Robert Russell in it for Christ's sakes. I had no idea. They remade blood feast. And it looks um, pretty serious. It didn't look like, you know, it, it approached it. And I'm not hyper serious. Uh, and that's something that you have to look at with um, the, the 1963 Herschel Gordon Lewis film. If you look at it like, well, why is it so hokey? Uh, if you can't you can't go into this with that sort of approach. This movie is it's hokey for the point of being hokey. It's pretty much a nudie cutie. It's a beach movie. They just stepped the girls up a little bit and didn't film in a nudist camp. Yeah, that's basically what it is. It's like there for your sheer enjoyment. And that's what is amazing about cinema from this time period, time period, especially exploitation cinema, is because it was purely there to be enjoyed. And it wasn't there to be dissected. It wasn't there to be thought about as how are we changing the world. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with fucking Parasite winning Best Picture, too, where it's all about thinking about where um, where we are in this world. But, I mean, it's okay to have shit like Blood Feast out there, too, where it's just there for strict titillation, and that and that's what it is. Well, it's exploiting you. It's exploiting your senses. It's it's exploiting your normals and, and anything that you would even consider to be art. It, it's taking away from that and adding something new, and I think, you know, just in the words of H.G. Lewis, it's, I'm an entertainer. That's how I see it, so I went at this at the angle of entertaining, and I knew the audience. You gotta know what the audience wants before they want it and give it to them. I'm giving you your money's worth, too, because about every 10 minutes or so, you're going to get something you've never seen before in 1963. And he continued that on with stuff like 2000 Maniacs, the gruesome twosome. He seemed to start getting less effective, though, throughout the uh, the early 70s. I mean, he did make the Gore Gore Girls. Well, which... him and Dave Friedman split, and I think that's really what damaged things, is they, them not working together, and you didn't have the Barker. It kind of screwed everything up. Yeah, that could be. I mean, he did make a, was it A Taste of Blood, which is like his moody vampire film, which is not very good. But the Gorgor Girls, like, it is way more violent than any uh, Lewis film of uh, the 1960s era. And it is, like, the the violence is so shitty in it, though. Like, the special effects are so bad, but they're also so fucking brutal the entire film. Uh, and that's really his swan song from this genre. I know he made Blood Feast 2 in the early 2000s, some other stuff. But after that is when we he kind of just that. opted out of making films and went on with his life with something else. Um, but that's a, that's a, a nice uh, grand farewell to the fucking genre of just making the Gore Gore Girls. Well, that's the story Joe Bob told, that he came to his house and was talking about the movies. And H.G. Uh, ushered him into the kitchen and said, well, we got to talk quietly about this. My wife doesn't like talking about that aspect of my life. So it wasn't like he just moved on and did a couple con appearances. He left the scene. He he put the camera away, just went home and became a dude and, and got a completely different career, which is really unique for a person in general. This dude did so much stuff. H.G. Lewis just impacted and did uh, so many things for different people's lives that they probably don't even think about. 
And as much as we're sitting here blowing H.G. Lewis, he does deserve it. Um, at the same time, Blood Feast is a terrible fucking movie. Oh, yeah. It's one of the goofiest, just uh, most bizarre, weird it's amazing, roller coasters. But it's terrible at the same time. It's it's that bridging that gap of like uh, best of the worst almost, where it's just like, yeah, I appreciate it for its history. I appreciate that it's funny at times. But overall, it's just a really poorly made film but eh, it's still great it's 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 pedigree is what is amazing about it its place in history is what's amazing and it deserves every um every list it's on it deserves everything that uh, this film gets because it was just it was a trailblazer for its time period and why do you think it was banned hank well, all the explicit scenes of violence Sheepstone. All the explicit scenes of violence. Although, I guess a lot of his other stuff just didn't make it over there. They just didn't realize yeah, that it was just feel, as violent. Yeah, I feel 2000 Maniacs is definitely much more obscene and has a lot more representations of physical violence and just uh, its bizarre nature and a little bit of racist humor definitely would have been caught, but what the fuck do and I also, know? And also, I think it might also, if you look at the uh, Section 1 list, there are a lot of movies with the name Blood in the title, and I think that's one of the things they were objecting to, was just the fact we that it had Blood in the title. We can't let the people know about Blood! Oh, no! I don't know. But, um, let's see. I do have a, a non-Joe Bob story I can tell before you get into this, uh, into the boring facts of the show. Before, you know, he got into horror and gore was really, you know, you, you said on the last show, it's fine, I think answered Fulci, we're getting into the Godfather of gore. Oh, Lucio Fulci? No, the American one. Ah, H.G. Lewis. But before he transcended and moved into that, he did Nudie Cuties, which were almost all entirely, the catch for being able to do these and get them shown in theaters was by shooting them at nudist colonies and in nudist camps. One of which, Dave Friedman and... um. H.G. Lewis had gone to, and they were told at the door, you know, you gotta, you gotta be nude. It's a nudist camp. So, you know, both brave guys said, fuck it. And they got naked and, you know, were scouting locations and looking around, wasted two or three hours pretty much of their time, and finally, you know, decide, we can do this. We can shoot here. This isn't gonna be too bad. Where they explained to them, your whole crew's gonna have to shoot naked. Everyone has to be naked. You, you can't, it's a nudist colony. You have to wear clothes. And that's just sort of the trouble and some of the things that they had to go through uh, just to shoot some of these movies, most of which were shot in two or three days. I believe Blood Feast was shot in an astounding nine days. So they would get in, they would get out, they would literally go to nudist camps and would shoot 70 minutes of people playing volleyball naked and that would get into the drive-in circuit. It would get into later the grindhouse circuit. And an appreciation for nudie cuties, uh, it was only like three or four years because quickly as laws changed and uh, the world changed, porn happened. So you didn't have to watch people playing volleyball. You could just watch them fuck. And H.G. Lewis didn't want to film people fucking. He'd rather kill them. And I like it. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, I mean, he just, he went with the money. That's basically where the the man went. I mean, there's money in fucking, it just wasn't his style. You know, I don't think he wanted to have to have a fluffer on deck and somebody jerking off a guy for three hours keeping him hard. He just wanted to get Well, he was an also a very old school guy. I mean, you're talking about somebody like World War II generation. It's like, porn was not like, I'll watch a, a chick get naked, but hardcore porn is out of my realm of comfortability. Um, so the... Uh, the current going price for the pre-certificate VHS from Astra, the Astra label, um, and it's got the classic Blood Feast poster on it. There are two different um, listings available. One is for 172 euros, 
and the other one is for 263 euros. So that's a a medium to high price video nasty. Again, probably what it is. It's blood feast. It is, it's a fucking drive in trash classic. It is a horror classic. It really started the ball rolling of what was possible in horror filmmaking and really taking to that, you know, next degree for, you know, for the disgusting underground trolls that we are as horror fans of like, yeah, I want to see some crazy shit like this. Well, then this is the granddaddy of them all. It's a good Ramiro term, it, you know, far before internet trolls. That's what he even referred to himself as and all of us that we're all trolls that we, we're underground. We want to see somebody get eaten and ripped apart. We're all just, menacing trolls and i've i've always grown grown fond of that term it makes me think of george all right from the book art of the nasty the listing for blood feast is the oldest of the nasties and considered by many to be the first ever gore film earning its director the godfather of gore moniker featuring playboy playmate connie mason uh, and this is just my uh, editorial on this um it's not in the book Connie Mason is a shit actress. Awful. God, is she terrible. Insufferable. Um, uh, this was a huge hit on the U.S. drive-in circuit and was swiftly followed by 2000 Maniacs and the Gruesome Twosome. Tartan reissued it on DVD initially with, with cuts of 23 seconds. The BBFC finally passed it uncut in April of 2005. So now you can, in the U.K., buy a uncut copy of Blood Feast because... Finally, these censors, the fucking draconian censors of the UK realized, how the fuck can you take any of this seriously? This is like the whip scene in Blood Feast is the one that makes me laugh the most because it just looks so not violent whatsoever. It looks like he's whipping her with a Q-tip. And there's ketchup just splashing everywhere. You know what the bad thing about pissing on Margaret Thatcher's grave is? You'll eventually run out of piss. Wow, that's dark. <laughs> I'm just not fond of the woman. So I don't know if I mentioned this on the last episode, but I do believe I exclaimed on the very first one that if you didn't want to spend a lot of money collecting the video nasties, I could help guide you and horror out companies that have produced some pretty okay additions. Now, last week Severin's was... the big one right now to yeah. find a lot of the nasties. Severin's the best place to go, but not for all of them. I don't know. I think I neglected to mention it last week, but you can find a great copy of Beast and Heat from Severin and Axe also from Severin. Something Weird Video put it out in the early 2000s, but I think that's a bit pricey. Now, on this episode, Arrow put out a great copy of Blood Feast, though I'll say the commentary is it's old, and it's not that it's old that it's bad. It, I, I think it was recorded with one microphone, and it's very, very hard to hear H.G. Um, Lewis and, and Friedman's much more excited than him and kind of over-talks, but that's whatever. Some great special features are on that disc, too. And then Kino Lorber Classics, Kino Classics put out a very nice but somewhat boring cover art for Bay of Blood that has a really, really cool commentary from Tim Lucas. And I personally have the uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis box set, the serial box set from Arrow, which is every single movie he made, including a lot of the nudie cuties, including Moonshine Mountain, a personal favorite. Um, and I don't know what that retails for anymore. It was fairly fucking pricey for a lot. movies that I can't like people are paying like a like a dollar to go see back in the day. Uh, I don't know how anyone gets in a position in their life when they're spending $200 on a fucking box set of mostly trash movies, but that's where I live. 
I saw a guy buy, no, I didn't see it, I saw it on the internet. I saw a fella on the internet buy a copy of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill for $160. Blu-ray, that's it. No, nothing else, it's just the Blu-ray of, of this Russ Meyer movie. Now that's astounding to have that sort of expendable fucking income. And, you know, I hunt for deals. I, I've been bragging about this. I'll bring it up again. I got this sweet-ass Dust Devil Blu-ray. It's fucking German. The box is German. Everything's German, but I have a multi-region DVD player. You know how much I got this sucker for? $20, retailing for about 180 on Amazon. Yeah, I, I feel like a big dick It's a stolen rick. item, Hank. I know it. I don't give a shit, man. Some German stole it. That's <laughs> fine. I got an $8 copy of Sexy Beast on Blu-ray. That retails for like 80 bucks. So what? The box is in German. Just put it on the English mono track. It's fucking English. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's Ben Kingsley. It's, it's, it's there. I just want to brag. I feel so good about myself. Well, at least, like, this episode of Video Nasty's had some movies that are actually kind of important to film history in, in general and not just one, complete trash. The, I mean, I, okay. Uh, I was going to say, I think the next one We has did some... Beast in Heat, Hank. Well, yeah, that's rough. I mean, Axe is rough. The very first episode wasn't, you know, the the greatest movies we could go into. I enjoy... <laughs> Show D'Amato movies. Yeah. These are the two best movies we've done so far. I, I have an appreciation for Aristide Masakizi as a craftsman and the fact that he just worked so darn hard, even though it wasn't always the, the best outcome and product. But I think the next Nasties episode isn't uh, inherently awful. I don't think they're, they're horrible movies. In fact, I think... And I, I'm not the biggest fan. I've not ventured very, very deep into his career, so I can't comment explicitly on it. I'm just not the biggest Jess Franco fan. But I think this is one of the bigger highlights of his career. And then, uh, again, Andy Milligan is somebody that's often cringed at. But this, too, is one of the more tolerable entries to a uh, film. And Andy Milligan himself is important because he's a fucking terrorist. But that's, that's next time, next month, whenever we get to this. I think we've <laughs> It's one of my least favorite Franco films, Hank. I think it's one of his least successful films, so we'll get into it about that one. Well, like I said, I'm not the most astute person when it comes to Franco. I don't have a, a large caliber or a big grasp on what his career is. So, yeah, And it's just something that when I was early into horror, I didn't grasp onto, so maybe now I'll like it a bit more. And that that's what was really fun with Bay of Blood. That's something I hadn't seen in maybe... I'd say 10 years, maybe the last time we reviewed it when we did a video nasty show on the original live Death by DVD, and my tastes just have, have drastically changed. I'm, I got really burned out on Italian films and Italian filmmaking, and recently it's just coming full circle for me, and I've been really getting back into it from, you know, the police subgenre to giallo to, to just pretty much, you know, I'm not sucking Fellini's dick quite yet, but... Uh, just the subgenres and exploitation aspects of Italian cinema are just—it's all beautiful. All of these guys, Fulci, everyone, were just master filmmakers. And no matter what the subject matter is or what the film is, it's—it's it's just really fun seeing people so well trained making films. It's just not like that anymore. It's not CGI laden bullshit with the same five very popular actors you've seen. It's just something absolutely different. And sometimes fucking guys like Oliver Reed and Yul Brynner pop up, and it's just fun. The Italians really, they they knew how to make film. I mean, they did it, man, better than almost anybody else. And now, I mean, this is somewhat embarrassing to admit, but just recently... um when I had the whole projector set up in my house and I went through the, like most of Fulci's uh, major catalog and watched them again. I've seen them all 
like plenty of times, 20, 30 times each, you know, seen zombie, the beyond city, of the living the dead big ones. and watching them on the big screen made me have so much more of appreciation for what an artist Fulci was that, I mean, is like has kind of trashy as he's thought of as this like gore hound and all this stuff. There was a lot of like real like stylistic haunting creepiness to a lot of Fulci stuff that I just had never appreciated on the small screen of just like kind of how like great he was as a visualist and just creating mood and tone when you're really surrounded by like, like all of it in a theater. It's just, it was kind of a, just a whole new experience for me and Italian filmmaking as a whole. I think somebody like Lucio Fulci, you really have to approach after a while when you've seen, um, you know, the more established horror movies, you need to go back and watch a Western and something he did before he got, really into horror and it's something a lot of uh, you know peers and other you know reviewers and critics have to say that Fulci didn't have a really clean style and when you watch his previous work and uh, you know he only made like one police movie also in the I think 1980 he, he has a very prominent style and it comes down to something like George Romero of quick cuts quick edits how things are, are melded and meshed together and it's just bizarre to me that it's not captured by a lot of people and Fulci always gets uh, an immaculate and masterful credit for being the godfather of gore for Italy and one of the most pronounced and well-known gore effects and horror guys. But as a creative person in general, as a filmmaker, I, I think there needs to be more direction pointed toward that, you know, more interest in, again, his master work. I mean, these, these, all of these guys, and I've said this throughout the entire show, at some point in time crossed each other's paths, but all of them had dedicated their lives from university onward to studying and learning and mastering film and they were guns so it wasn't so much yeah i'm gonna make horror movies my entire life it's i get to make movies my entire life what's better than that and they gave it their all it wasn't a half-assed gig eh, i don't care about this i mean uh bringing up dardando sacchetti again most of Fulci's greatest works were co-penned by him, the Beyond specifically. Then they eventually split up after, I believe, Conquest, and that's where you know Fulci's career kind of went downward, and he got very, very sick and ended up dying afterwards. Um, not shortly, I think he died in 1996, so you know, seven or eight years afterwards. So uh, again, just all these guys work together, and I'm a big, big Dardando Sacchetti fan. If you just go to you know Google and put his name in and check out IMDb, no matter what movie you pick, genuinely will be pretty good. And what's great about the Italians too is it's it's scary, it's horror. It it embodies what you want out of horror. You want to feel emotion. <clears throat> there it is. Uh, and really going into a lot of the Italian stuff. It's just, they really like, especially with Fulci, he had some obvious darkness inside of him. And I don't like, that's not how violent his films were, or it's just how he was able to tackle this horrible dark tone. Cause if you look at his, uh, whatever the hell they refer to it as, I, I don't give a shit. His, what his zombie trilogy, what the fuck do they call it? The something Undead stupid. Trilogy or something like yeah, that? Yeah, the Undead, whatever the fuck. But if you look at the Beyond, if you look I mean, at you City of the Dead and um, House by the Cemetery, he really saw terror almost through a child's eyes. And if you really look at a lot of Fulci's movies as being like almost childhood traumas, experiencing this as a child as opposed to a, an adult, you really get into it more because everything just feels a little bit off. Everything feels like you're not particularly comprehending 
um, mostly due to you being naive as a child, the things that are going on around you, and they all seem so much darker than they actually probably are. I don't know. I'm I'm babbling on about <laughs> my Fulci thing that I, I've recently, like my epiphany about Fulci recently, but whatever. Well, there's a lot of truth into that, though. Look at something like House by the Cemetery and the, the representation That's of all the... about through a child's eyes. I mean, really go yeah. back and look at it as if you were like Bob's age. Well, in that's that who film. you're supposed to be, I think. I think that's the representation of how you intake the film is through Bob and his fear. And a lot of the paranormal activity in the movie opens up and is shown through Bob. So it's kind of your passageway into being a child. And, and that's the, the way that I think Fulci intended you to observe the movie. And you know, going back into something like Bay of Blood and talking about Bava's editing and his, his just beautiful nature of doing things. And I had referenced the little smiley face on the car. You know, there's a, a, a very awful murder sequence. And this is one of my favorite ones where the, the kind of witchy Medusa wife finds the seemingly injured and dead guy and sits down to examine his wounds. And she almost like like meditative kind of acknowledges that something awful is going to happen and looks down and she's beheaded and right as she's beheaded it cuts to the children dropping something and again it's this this point of friendly reality acknowledging none of this is real but at the same time it's horrifying and it's that style it's that thought that's put into things that's something that's missing in a lot of modern cinema now is it's filling time, you know, uh, what can I do to, to quick cut? What can I do to fill the scene? But when you go back to something like Bay of Blood and uh, George Romero, a lot of the heroes we talk about on this show, all of the things that are shown to you are needed to be shown to you. Everything plays a part into this massive uh, opera. And, like, Bay of Blood certainly has an operatic feel to it. It, it really plays out like some great tragic italian opera you know you can just imagine a crying clown at the end of the movie wow we just slipped right back into talking about bay of blood again didn't we well the video nasties is a tricky bitch this one was fun though bava's always delightful to talk about and hg like i said these episodes probably aren't going to get much better than this we're going to have to talk about Paul Nashy werewolf film at some point. You've got a lot of passion behind it, though, because we've spent years watching this. I mean, this is something we kind of get off on, and the video nasties are just legendary, and everybody has their own reviews. Everybody has a critique, but I think what we are trying to do more so than anything is just enjoy ourselves, and we are fans more importantly than anything else. We, we love this genre. This is what's important to us, and getting to come back to this and... I mean, just remembering when I hunted down handwritten lists and tried to find VH copies of these as a teenager and how much effort I put into finding some of these god-awful movies like Beast and Heat, it's fun remembering, just having passion in general. Having passion is just kind of nice. You mean caring about something? Especially other than yourself? Let's go back to that Parasite episode, audience. Try not to be like that. All right, is that going to wrap her up? I think the ashtray is full. The bottle's not empty, but we'll finish it up later. 